think that there is sort of a, a climate of deference to religion in many areas of society. You're listening to episode 48 of the National Secular Society podcast, produced by Emma Park. The Jehovah's Witnesses are an organization of evangelical fundamentalists. They are notorious for their secrecy, exclusivity, and refusal of blood transfusions in life-threatening operations. The latter has led to a number of court cases, especially where young people, who are still legal minors, are concerned. These cases inspired Ian McEwan's novel The Children Act, in which a High Court judge has to decide whether to order a hospital to give a teenage boy a transfusion against his wishes. One thing McEwan did not consider, however, is the role played in these situations by so-called hospital liaison committees. These groups of Jehovah's Witness elders are allowed access to a patient in need of a transfusion and will put pressure on them to refuse it. As reported by the NSS last year, the Jehovah's Witnesses have also done their best to obstruct investigation into allegations of child abuse within their organization. In 2014, Mark Sewell, an elder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment for raping a woman known as Mrs. B in his house and indecently assaulting a girl under 14. Mrs. B then sued the Barry Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, into which she had been baptized when she met Mark Sewell. The Court of Appeal has just upheld the judgment of the High Court that the Jehovah's Witnesses were vicariously liable for the rape. It has awarded Mrs. B damages for the psychiatric injuries that the rape caused her. One of the most chilling features of this case was the fact that, as the court found, the teachings of the JWs gave elders considerable power and authority over others who were enjoined to be obedient and submissive to them. The culture of the Jehovah's Witnesses, said the court, imbued leaders with power and authority even outside the confines of their religious activities. I'm joined today by Lloyd Evans. Lloyd is a former elder who left the Jehovah's Witnesses in 2013. Since then, he has devoted himself to exposing its inner workings. Lloyd will be talking to me about the harms caused by the Jehovah's Witnesses, the challenges of resisting them, and why it is wholly inappropriate for their organisations to have charitable status. Lloyd Evans, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, what do the JWs actually believe? Well, Jehovah's Witnesses are, you could say, a Bible literalist, fundamentalist, Christian denomination who believe that the world is ending very soon. And their roots go back to Charles Taze Russell and the Bible student movement in the late 19th century, which was very much inspired by Adventism, which obviously focuses on the second coming of Christ. The movement morphed during the 20th century into what it's known today as the Jehovah's Witnesses. The organization kind of ballooned in the, I would say, 40s, 50s, and 60s due to an astute appointment uh, of Nathan Knorr to the presidency. He was very much about growing the movement and expanding internationally. And so, yeah, today the organization has moved away from the presidential model of leadership and is now run by a governing body uh, that basically appoints its own members. Um, that's been the case since the 1970s. And so now uh, eight and a half million Jehovah's Witnesses have their lives very much micromanaged by uh, currently eight members of the governing body in New York. So they're in New York, they're in America, they're in the UK. Where else are they mainly based? Well, they like to say that they're global. 
It's not quite as simple as that, though, because there are large parts of the world where it's almost impossible to find Jehovah's Witnesses, including, you know, parts of North Africa, the Middle East. Um, they're, they're basically banned um, in, in, lo- in large parts of the world, including China. Um, but the parts where they're not banned, uh, you will usually find Jehovah's Witnesses in some form, although there are higher concentrations in North and South America, uh, Europe, parts of Africa, and uh, Australia. Let's talk about their, um, the doctrine for which they're particularly notorious, that of refusing blood transfusions. When did this um, become a tenet of the Jehovah's Witnesses? So this was introduced in 1945, or at least that's when we first find this idea expressed in the publications that it would be wrong or uh, something that would displease God if one were to receive blood medically. Interestingly, just a few years before, um, they had just kind of mentioned this story in passing of a woman receiving a blood transfusion and no big deal was made of it. And we don't really know why the decision was made or how it was made or who it was made by. It seems to me as though the leadership at that time were very interested in finding ways to be different, finding ways to single themselves out from sort of mainstream Christianity. And they came up with this idea that blood transfusions were an aberration because the Bible condemns eating blood. And therefore, if the Bible condemns eating blood, of course, why would one you know, have it transfused into one's body, even if it were to save one's life. So it's kind of started in 1945. By the 1960s, it had become a disfellowshipping offence. There was a slight change in 2000 where they said, well, whole blood transfusions are still forbidden uh, and you can't have any of the main components, namely red blood cells, white blood cells, plasma or platelets, but you can have uh, derivatives from those main components. So if, for example, there were a way of getting the hemoglobin out of a blood cell, you could have the hemoglobin. Of course, red blood cells are pretty much only hemoglobin in a wrapper, but that that's the level to which they kind of um, cherry pick and you know and 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 go into minute detail into what God would or wouldn't be uh, in approval of. So currently, Jehovah's Witnesses are still prohibited from receiving blood, although there is leeway when it comes to some of the smaller de- derivatives. And although it's not a disfellowshipping uh, offence you can still be disassociated, which means basically the same thing, if you willfully um, and unrepentantly receive a blood transfusion as a Jehovah's Witness. That seems like a a rather arbitrary doctrine to to put so much weight on. Well, yeah, indeed. And, you know, it doesn't really make any sense. It's one of those things where perhaps in hindsight, the organisation might have chosen not to go down this route, given how many Jehovah's Witnesses it's killing. Um, But it's one of those things, unfortunately, where, you know, once the blood starts to be spilled, you're kind of committed. It's the sunk cost fallacy, isn't it? As as when people start dying, um, you can't really do a U-turn, even if you wanted to, because then you would have to account for all the people who died when you were telling people that this was what God wanted. 
So it seems to me fairly obvious that even if Jehovah's Witnesses or the Jehovah's Witness leadership wanted to do an about-face on this, they actually couldn't because they would be then you know, held accountable, quite rightly so, for all of those who were martyred uh, by following this decree. That, that seems very telling in terms of, of, of their mentality that they sort of have to be, um, once they're committed, they just have to go down a route, even if it turns out to be illogical or even inhumane. Uh, how, how would you characterize uh, the mentality of the JWs as an organization? Well, look, it's important to stress that on an individual basis, um, Jehovah's Witnesses are some of the nicest sweetest, kindest people that you're likely to meet. I mean, I was one. I spent lots of time with them. Many of my family growing up were and continue to be Jehovah's Witnesses. But like most sort of high control movements, it's not necessarily a problem with with the members or the followers. It's a problem with the leadership. And what the leadership have done is they've created this incredibly insular movement where everything on the outside is to be distrusted. There can't be anything, any form of criticism or consulting anything that might criticize the organization. The only information that's to be trusted is information from the leaders. It's all very Orwellian. And obviously this cultivates a culture where there is immense distrust of the authorities. You can understand why that would be a problem for things like child sexual abuse and where members are terrified of examining any objective reasons for for criticizing the organization. So the point where you feel as though when you go on a website that's critical of the organization, you feel as though a fireball might come down at any moment and obliterate you. So that I, I don't think I'm exaggerating <laughs> to say that that's kind of the existence of, of a Jehovah's Witness. It's like kind of an alternate reality almost. How did the community of, of Jehovah's Witnesses react to your leaving? Not very well, because to this day, I'm obviously shunned by them and by my father, who's an elder. Um, my, my father won't just, uh, doesn't just refuse to speak to me, but also hasn't met his two grandchildren, my two daughters. Uh, one's two and one's nearly seven. So I, in a way, I feel the punishment from my decision to leave on sort of a daily basis because, you know, my life is different than it would be if there weren't such harsh penalties imposed on people who start thinking for themselves and, and, and have a change of heart about the religion. So that's, I suppose, the main thing. But certainly in the immediate aftermath of the decision to leave, there was an awful lot of family tension and lots of um, very difficult conversations. And, and it was a very, very stressful period. And, you know, compounded by the fact that, of course, because your indoctrination is so strong, you're going through sort of an existential crisis and doubting yourself at every turn, thinking, am I making a huge mistake? You know, how could it be that my entire perception of, of the world and, and its future um, is actually accurate and everyone else is wrong? So... Yeah, it's a very, very unpleasant thing to uh, go through that process. And that's why my book is called The Reluctant Apostate. I'm obviously not reluctant now. I'm quite glad I'm an apostate. But at the time, you're, you have lots of trepidation when it comes to questioning your beliefs.
You've talked about, um, you know, shunning, disfellowshipping, disassociating. Is this um, always a, a part of, of the Jehovah's Witness culture for anyone who wants to leave the organization? And how does it work? So there are sort of, there's sort of a spectrum when it comes to shunning. You know, I've mentioned before bad association. They use the verse uh, in the Bible, bad association spoil useful habits, and they use that to dissuade people from higher education. But you can be, quote-unquote, bad association even as a Jehovah's Witness, and you will experience a degree of shunning regardless of whether you've actually done anything wrong. So let's say, for example, you you know, you have your hair done a certain way or you wear a sort of outfit that is deemed worldly or, you know, it becomes knowledge, public knowledge that you're watching films that the organisation doesn't approve of. You will be sort of, the grapevine will swing into action (laughs) and, you know, in hushed tones, you know, it will be made clear that you're bad association and not someone to be socialized with. So even though when you go to the Kingdom Hall, people will still be speaking to you, you know, you're still going to have it, you're going to see an impact and you're going to see a degree of ostracism. Um, There's also such thing as marking, whereby if you're doing something that isn't specifically uh, prohibited, but it's still going against the advice of the elders, there will a talk will be given where your name isn't mentioned, but what you're doing is spelled out very clearly so that people know, know who it is that's being spoken about. And the idea is that they're not allowed to socialize with you anymore, but they can still talk to you at the meetings or doing the preaching work. So that's another level of ostracism. But the ultimate level of ostracism, of course, is if you either leave through disassociating, which is what I did, or if you are ejected due to having um, done something wrong, which is disfellowshipping. Let's talk about um, blood transfusions and, and the, or the refusal of them and the way that works. You've been in, involved in in work sort of opposing hospital liaison committees. What are these hospital liaison committees um, of, of the Jehovah's Witnesses and how are they involved when patients are in a life-threatening situation and might need a blood transfusion? So hospital liaison committees are sort of elite groups of elders. Each congregation has its own body of elders. But let's say in a circuit of congregations, there will be a hospital liaison committee that's kind of comprised of the cream of the crop of elders from that circuit. And these elders are tasked with ingratiating themselves with local hospitals and making sure that if a Jehovah's Witness is admitted to hospital and there's a likelihood of a blood transfusion, the the hospital or the doctors or the nurses are on board and basically willing to make sure that the, the patient doesn't receive blood. That's basically their modus operandi. And of course, when you throw into the mix, and the reason why I've been so vocal and written a blog article for the National Secular Society, you know, when you throw into the mix the fact that a Jehovah's Witness can be penalized if they receive a blood transfusion, quote-unquote, willingly and unrepentantly, you can see why it's deeply, deeply inappropriate for hospitals to be essentially holding the door open for these groups of elders. Why, Why do you think hospitals are so willing to do that? I think that there is 
sort of a, a climate of deference to religion in many areas of society. And in I can imagine if I were, you know, on the on the board of trustees at a hospital or something, I would be thinking, well, you know, this is just the same as, you know, a Catholic priest perhaps coming to the bedside and administering the last rites or giving pastoral care to you know, a patient, you know, how is this any different? Well, it's it's completely different because in almost any other case, when some when a minister of religion or a rabbi or whatever attends a hospital bed, there isn't really the likelihood of them penalizing the patient depending on what medical decision they make. But in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, that is absolutely something that could happen and will happen if the wrong decision is made and of course because they're at the at the bedside they have a grandstand view and can reach conclusions as to whether blood was received willingly and unrepentantly or not um and you know it, it's worth noting jehovah's witnesses of, of course will say well there's never going to be a situation arise where a jehovah's witness will accept blood you know we don't accept that that that, that could even be a thing but I've, you know, encountered anecdotes of where people in that situation have relented. You know, you just never know, no matter how much you believe that, you know, having a blood transfusion is, you know, akin to fornication and a violation of your body. And that's how I believed. That's what I believed as a Jehovah's Witness. You just never know how you might feel when death is imminent and you know that you're going to die unless you receive a blood transfusion. And one thing that you know we found with the National Secular Society when we looked into this is that there are indeed, you know, studies that have been done that have shown in in a given hospital, you know, here's how many Jehovah's Witnesses were treated, and oh look, a small percentage did in the end agree to receiving um, at least one of the main components of blood. So. There's always this likelihood that a Jehovah's Witness might want to save their lives and receive blood. And then you have these men in suits at their bedside who are literally tasked with making sure that they don't receive blood. You can understand why it's inappropriate for hospitals to be allowing that influence at the patient's bedside. You've been a core participant in an inquiry into the Jehovah's Witnesses' attempts to cover up inquiries into child abuse in their organisation. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I was very glad to um, be involved with the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse for England and Wales as a core participant. Um, incidentally, for the record, Jehovah's Witnesses trying to get me thrown off the inquiry. Uh, they actually they actually sent a letter and a, a nine-page dossier to the inquiry uh, accusing me of hate speech and citing examples from my YouTube channel of where I've supposedly been hateful towards Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so they weren't happy about me kind of using my knowledge in that way. But yes, it is um, unfortunately true that Jehovah's Witnesses have policies in place that facilitate the abuse of children and actively conceal criminals from law enforcement. So we have a situation where, you know, there's documented evidence in the organization's own eyes-only confidential uh, documents 
that demonstrate that Jehovah's Witnesses have a policy of maintaining a database of accused pedophiles, and these records aren't automatically passed on to the police. So you have this situation where the police is kept out of the loop entirely, enabling individuals accused of child abuse to just continue to operate and potentially uh, accumulate more victims. In a similar um, case, the Court of Appeal has just handed down judgment in Barry Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses and BXB, and it's upheld the finding of the judge at the first instance that the Jehovah's Witnesses were vicariously liable for the rape of a woman member by an elder, Mark Sewell, back in 1990. The court spoke of the power and authority which elders have over their congregation and the obedience and submissiveness that are expected towards them. You've spoken about uh, the docility of members of the Jehovah's Witnesses congregation. Um, have you seen in other respects, um, in your own experience, this cult of obedience leading to harm and to abuse of people within the organisation? Well, I've been an elder, albeit for 12 months, and I've seen the esteem with which elders are held by members of the congregation and I can fully understand why when an elder is an abuser, and there's nothing saying that an elder can't be an abuser, um, I can fully imagine how such an elder could be automatically believed by his colleagues and use his power and influence to act abusively towards members of the congregation. And again, the policies in the organisation sort of make it easy for this to happen and certainly easy for any abuse to stay off the radar of the police because they view any sort of impropriety going on in the congregation as first and foremost their jurisdiction to investigate. So they won't automatically hand over the matter to the authorities and say, you know, we have a situation here, you know, we need a, a police officer to come and, and, and have a word. They will view it as their remit so that even when we come to child sexual abuse and the way that's handled, they have literal direction in their elders only manuals called the Shepherd, the Flock of God book that says, if you hear of a, an accusation of child sexual abuse, you need to report it straight to the branch and the branch will advise you on what happens next. So do the Jehovah's Witnesses, do their policies effectively treat them as not bound by the laws of England and Wales? Well, they wouldn't say that, obviously. They would they would say that they do recognise the proper legal authorities and they submit to, they call it Caesar's law. Um, but the, the reality of it is that they put their own organisation and its interests ahead of the needs of victims if they were to be fully compliant with societal norms when it comes to child safeguarding and you know other matters related to sexual predators they wouldn't be saying you know only involve the branch only speak to the branch we'll deal with it we'll we'll give you advice they would be telling bodies of elders if this happens go straight to the police but that sort of advice for elders is conspicuous by its absence in 2019, you wrote a blog post for the NSS in which you argued that the Jehovah's Witnesses should not have charitable status, um, which the organisation currently does, as a result of the fact that under English law, the advancement of religion is in, in itself a charitable aim. Do you think, I mean, 
presumably you do think that the Jehovah's Witnesses have abused their status as a charity. Well, yeah, I obviously think that because in a way I'm on the receiving end of this abuse, as I mentioned, on a daily basis through the shunning policy. And you have to understand, certainly from the perspective of child abuse survivors, you know, when they are seeing so obviously what the problems are, and they're even seeing material in the publications and in the videos doubling down on these policies. And, you know, it's not just about child sexual abuse. I'll give you another example. Um, in the area of domestic violence, they've literally published magazine articles for distribution in the United Kingdom, I might add, saying that if you are an abused spouse, you need to stay in your marriage because being abused isn't grounds for a divorce. So it's better off to stay in an abusive relationship and try working on it. And, you know, they, they published this. It was in black and white. It was in, I think, 2019. And I was jumping up and down at the time on Twitter saying, you know, how on earth in the 21st century can an organization get away with such appalling advice, printing it and publishing it? Um, and this is before we even think about, you know, the database that I've just divulged and, you know, the blood transfusion issues and the shunning issues. How can an organization publish such appalling material and still call itself a charity? And obviously the way it works in England and Wales is that if you are just advancing religion, that alone is grounds for calling yourself a charity. And so in my in my blog article for the NSS, I argued otherwise. I said, no, that there needs to be, quote-unquote, public benefits. It can't just simply be an organization, a religious organization, promoting itself and, the, and calling itself a charity on those grounds, which is the case for Jehovah's Witnesses. And perhaps this goes back to the point you made earlier about deference to religion within public institutions in the UK, the, the idea that just religion is seen as a good in itself, whatever that religion holds. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I might say that, you know, this is one of the problems I've had uh, with the inquiry into child sexual abuse. And, uh, you know, Richard Scorer, who is obviously well known to the NSS, he happens to be my legal representation there, full disclosure. You know, one of the problems we've had with that inquiry is that we said very early on, you know, there needs to be full disclosure of the records. Jehovah's Witnesses are keeping these meticulous records about accusations of abuse. When the same investigation happened in Australia for the Australian Royal Commission, the Australian government seized the records and discovered that out of 1,006 cases of abuse stretching back to 1950, not a single one had been reported to the authorities. Now, ICSA, the Independent, Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, has the powers to do the same thing and say, well, we demand these records and we want to see for ourselves what percentage are being reported to the authorities. And for some reason, that I mean, we've, we've never really received any sort of anything remotely approaching a satisfactory uh, explanation. For some reason, ICSA has just said, well, we don't need that information. We're going to make our findings without that information. 
And for me, that as well speaks to just this enormous deference to religion. You know, I like to think that in almost any other context, you know, an organization concealing criminals from the law would be front page news. If, for example, it was a football club or if it was a school or maybe kind of like a high street chain or a gym, comp, a, 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 you know, a gym franchise or something, you'd like to think that if they had written policies saying we're going to keep these individuals secret from from the police, it would be splashed all over the front page. But for some reason, when it's a religion, society just says, ah, well, what can we do? You know, they get to decide for themselves how they manage these things. And I, frankly, I just think we're living at the wrong point in history. And, and that's why I think the work of the NSS is so important in highlighting these enormous injustices. Britain just doesn't seem to have got into the 21st century as far as religion is concerned. Oh, absolutely not. And, you know, I, I might say that it's very re-traumatising as a former cult member, as sort of a cult refugee, because when you do kind of make it out, uh, when you escape that sort of abusive, exploitative situation, you like to think that you'll be greeted on the other side by a society that's horrified that you've been through that experience and will work its very hardest to make sure that it isn't repeated. But the truth of the matter is that, again, we're living at the wrong point in history. And when you do make it out of a cult, uh, you know, I unashamedly apply that word to Jehovah's Witnesses, because of the deference to religion, uh, society just shrugs its shoulders and seems completely indifferent to the whole experience. And again, just applies spadefuls of, of tolerance to these uh, policies and practices that are hurting people and ruining lives. Tolerance in all the wrong places. Absolutely. Finally, what is the best way of tackling the Jehovah's Witnesses in the long term and preventing them from causing further harm to more people? That's a, a difficult question and probably more educated people than me will have ideas. I, I do know what I don't like to see, which is the outright banning of Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's unfortunately been the case in many countries around the world. And I think when you do that, when you apply that sort of heavy handedness to a cult, what you do is you just drive the abuse underground. You know, it still stays there. And in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, you also furnish a persecution complex narrative that, that can actually boost the propaganda that the leaders put out. So I'm very much against um, banning cults and abusive religious movements, but I do think that legislation needs to be uh, brought in that identifies these areas of abuse and holds the, the leaders accountable. And what's very interesting is last month in Belgium, there was a criminal case in which Jehovah's Witnesses in that country were fined 96,000 euros for violating the human rights of a number of former witnesses through their shunning practice. Because, you know, everyone has the human right of freedom of worship, but that human right includes freedom to leave one's religion if one wishes. And so if you have an organization that is exporting punishment on people who do leave, there's a violation there 
of human rights, especially if you're, you know, using all sorts of hateful rhetoric to stigmatize and demonize these individuals. Well, this is uh, discrimination and it's uh, it's hate speech. And in Belgium, at least, they they have t- they have acted accordingly, and it's very encouraging to see that governments are slowly, you know, painfully slowly, arguably, starting to apply this sort of pressure. And I can only hope that even if it's not in my generation that we see these issues taken seriously, I can only hope that in future generations, um, organisations that do abuse people and make people miserable um, will be held accountable by law. And so the rigorous and consistent application of human rights law may be one way of starting that process. Yes, it, it's 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 just a principle at the moment. It means virtually nothing to the thousands of people each year who are either ejected from Jehovah's Witnesses or leave as a matter of conscience. You know, they find out, oh, actually, this is a violation of your human rights, but it actually means nothing in practice because those human rights aren't enforced. Lloyd Evans, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm joined now by Megan Manson, Head of Policy and Research at the NSS, to give the NSS's comment on the Jehovah's Witnesses. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Emma. So first of all, I think one point that Lloyd made that I found very interesting was this idea of deference to religion, both that there's this sort of culture of deference to religion within the NHS, um, within the health service, and also perhaps within public institutions in the UK in general. Is that something which accords with your own experience um, and the experience of the NSS? Uh, absolutely, one hundred percent. And I mean, the uh, the NSS's uh, strapline is challenging religious privilege. And when we talk about religious privilege, um, what we're really talking about is this is this deference to religion, the idea that somehow religion is special and should have exceptions um, when it comes to the general law- laws and principles that apply to everyone. Um, so yes, we see that in. Um, all facets of society and pretty much everything we campaign on um, is about this deference to religion. So whether it be education and the high level of control that religious groups have in education or in um, our own parliament um, where you have 26 bishops in the House of Lords. And um, as we've heard from uh, Lloyd um, in uh, the healthcare as well. And the strange thing seems to be that it, it doesn't matter what the religion is, what the belief is, if it's labelled as a religious belief, then it seems to be above scrutiny. Talking of strange religious beliefs, I mean, this idea of refusing blood transfusions, which, as we have seen, um, Lloyd said, was introduced by the Jehovah's Witnesses in, 90, in the 1940s and has sort of been adopted just to make them different from other religions. So a totally arbitrary belief. Um, and we have this strange idea now that um, the Jehovah's Witnesses have hospital liaison committees, which sort of almost coerce um, Jehovah's Witnesses who are in need of a transfusion not to have one. Megan, what's been the NSS's involvement with these hospital liaison committees? So this is something that we um, worked with Lloyd on. So it was Lloyd who basically raised this issue um, of hospital liaison committees um, and it, precisely what they do in hospitals, the um, the fact that they discourage uh, Jehovah's Witnesses from 
from receiving blood. So when we found out about this, um, we decided to write a letter to the Department of Health. And Lloyd helped us in writing that letter uh, to raise these concerns. Um, because honestly, I, th- I think that um, the NHS it really does bend over backwards to make sure that all patients, regardless of their religion or belief, uh, feel welcome, feel supported, uh, to basically provide a a sort of personalised service to them. And I think that's commendable. However, this issue of the hospital liaison committees has shown that there can be some problems with this approach and the approach of of chaplaincy in general, a multi-faith chaplaincy. So whilst it's it's wonderful that the NHS wants to have it to try and provide this spiritual support to people regardless of religion or belief, it can, as we can see in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, lead to people coming into hospitals who's who might have other agendas. And in the case of the Jehovah's Witnesses Hospital Liaison Committees, that agenda is in direct conflict with the health and welfare of the patient. How far um, do hospital liaison committees have influence on particular NHS hospitals and organisations? Well, when I looked into this, I was um, really quite shocked um, because um, so I looked at uh, the policies uh, regarding blood transfusions and regarding um, interface with religious organisations of a, a number of trusts. And I was really surprised to see that the hospital liaison committees have been sort of providing training in hospitals to sort of talk about Jehovah's Witnesses and I, I suspect to make the case for why they res- they refuse blood. And um, they also have been writing or helping to write um, hospital policies regarding blood transfusions, which I think is really quite worrying if the NHS is allowing religious groups to sort of co-write their policies about patient health care. So they're sort of predisposing hospital staff to assume that everyone who's a Jehovah's Witness is going to um, refuse blood. Yes, that's right. I did see wording that did seem to say that, that sort of said, well, Jehovah's Witness patients refuse blood. Now, I think that is a, a dangerous assumption to make. Um, I'm sure that, you know, there are checks and balances and any Jehovah's Witness who comes in is asked, look, do you want to uh, receive blood or not? However, if the assumption is already there that they almost certainly will, or they definitely will, then I think that puts pressure on the patient. If they're on the fence and thinking, well, actually, now now it's come down to crunch time, I think I would rather receive blood and, you know, I'd rather stay alive and look after my children, for example. But if there's that pressure there, not only from the hospital liaison committees, but also from, from staff, just tacitly by assuming that they're going to be refusing blood, then, yeah, I think that that could possibly make the difference in their decision and that in turn can make the difference between life and death. Lloyd also raised the point that Jehovah's Witnesses are a charity, but there seem to be good reasons for thinking they shouldn't be one. Uh, Currently, they're a charity because the advancement of religion is in itself deemed a qualification for charitable status. Megan, this is something which the NSS has long been campaigning on, that the advancement of religion should not in itself be a qualification for charitable status. Um, Do you think that the Jehovah's Witnesses are a good illustration of the problems of having this qualification? Um, Definitely. Um, I definitely think they are a a very good example of why the advancement of religion should not uh, qualify you um, as a charity. And so just to um, explain a little bit more, there are a number of charitable purposes set out in law, um, many of which are there sort of for um, historical reasons um, and many of which are absolutely fine and many people would still agree are, are beneficial to society. I think the advancement of religion is a particularly old one. It was there 
um, as a result of the, uh, it used to be the advancement of the Church of England. And uh, that's evolved over time as um, you know, different religions became more influential in society. So there was a, an assumption that, that benefiting, advancing the cause of the church was in itself beneficial for society. And that presumption that advancing religion is somehow beneficial is still there, even though um, we are now less religious than we ever have been. Um, the surveys consistently show that over 50% of the population say they have no religion. And there's now more awareness that many religious practices um, are harmful. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are a good example of this. So we heard from Lloyd about the the, the shunning, um, which is, uh, you know, is, is frankly cruel to so, tell people you can't leave this religion. Um, if you do, then you're expected to, to cease contact with your friends and family. There's the examples of, of the their appalling record on, on child abuse and safeguarding. And they're discouraging of social cohesion as well, basically telling witnesses that you you know, you shouldn't really make friends with non-witnesses. Uh, yeah, so we're just seeing a catalogue of harms caused by this organisation. And I, I completely agree with Lloyd that it, the, banning them is certainly not the way to go. That would be completely contrary to um, secularist principles. And, and and yes, I also agree with him that it would that that it would sort of feed in to the persecution complex that um, the Jehovah's Witnesses may already have. So yes, a ban is certainly not the way to go. However, questioning and challenging their charitable status on the basis that they are clearly in some ways um, harming society and their own members, whilst the benefits of this uh, this this religion are, are quite hard for most people to see. Um, I imagine that many people in the organisation, you know, they might they might well enjoy the social aspect of it, but is that enough to? To, to be a registered charity I don't think it is Megan Manson thank you very much thank you this episode was produced by the National Secular Society all rights reserved the views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS you can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.